0: Our job as hoteliers is to remove friction from people's trips. So as long as it's intuitive and it saves them time to do things that they want to do, then I think you're on the right path. If it's eating into that time, then you're on the wrong path.
1: Hello and welcome to The Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi, your all-in-one modern operating system for independent hotels. Each episode, we'll get to know an industry expert and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, The Modern Hotelier. Welcome to The Modern Hotelier, presented by Stay Flexi. I'm your host, David Malilli. And I'm Steve Karen. Steve, who do we have on the program today? Yeah,
2: David, today we have um, Barack Hershowitz. Barack is the founder and president of the International Luxury Hotels Association. Barack is also the founding partner of Hospitalio Recruitment, and in the past was named one of the top five best chefs in South Africa. Welcome to the show, Barack.
0: Hey, thanks, guys.
1: Thanks for having me on the show. Welcome. So we're going to go through three areas. We're going to ask you some kind of lightning round questions, get to know you better. We're going to dive into your career, and then we are going to ask you some thoughts on the industry. So we're going to kick it off. What was your first job?
0: Well, my first job in, in hospitality, I would say officially, I was a dishwasher in a, in a restaurant about a block from my, uh, from my house. And that, you know, never thought that would lead to the career that it did, but it did. But my first real job in, in hotels I went on to study culinary. As you'd mentioned, I was a chef at Johnson Wales. My internship was at the Grand Floridian Hotel at Disney, which was still relatively new then. It was, it's a flagship property for them. It's, it's still, I think, one of the highest rate properties in the hotel in, in Disney. And it was fantastic. It was just a great way to start your career. I have somewhere. I've kept it over the years. But they handed us a card that we used to carry around with us, which said Grand for Grand Floridian and on on the back, it said "Grand stands for guest requests are never denied. And so they said, before we even put a foot on the floor working there, that if a guest has a question for you or asks you to do something and it's legal, you know, and it's not going to endanger you, then you need to do it. And there were steps on how to, you know, if you couldn't resolve or help them, how you would, you know, get it done and how you would tell them how long it would take and, and all of this. And I, I think that's something that like, put me right on the right track, you know, because if you have that in your mind in the hotel industry, that's what we're all about is really just helping guests with having just an amazing experience, whether it's for work or for business when they travel. So yeah, that was the start of my career.
1: Great. What was the best piece of advice you've received?
0: So I go back to that card. I'd say, you know, I think guest requests are never, never denied, but I'll also say something that's kind of stuck with me over the years I had the opportunity to work later on in my career for, for a hotel that went on to win best hotel in the world. And we always knew who our guests were. So if somebody was staying in our hotel, we knew who they were before they came. We found out why they were there and we took ownership of them during their stay. And I think that's, that's something where I feel like you know, our bigger luxury properties maybe lose out sometimes is they give you everything except for knowing who their people are.
1: What's the biggest risk you've ever taken?
0: I think I was in culinary school. I was graduating. And uh, my family's originally from South Africa. And that's, I mean, we moved over here to the US while I was young. And the chairman, the late Billy Gallagher, he was president of the World Association of Cook Societies, which is all the chefs' associations in the world, kind of oversees all of them. And he was uh, from South Africa and he came to Johnson Wales while I was a student there. And I, you know, had a chat to him about that my family was short from there, and he said, "Oh, come work for me." And so when I graduated, I said to my friends, "I'm jumping on a plane and I'm going to South Africa to work." And I, that was probably the biggest risk that I've ever done. But yeah, I think it's those kind of risks that really help you in the industry.
1: Definitely. Name a person, dead or alive, you'd like to take to lunch, and where would you take them?
0: Yeah, I'd like to take Ian Schrager. He's still alive. I hope. So. <laughs> I feel like a lot of. Why my organization exists is because of all the change that happened in our industry. And I think talking about luxury hotels and how they've changed from everything kind of looking very similar, that sort of classic luxury feel, to just in a million different directions. In fact, at our conference coming up, we have a new brand that's being launched by Steve Wozniak, who's co-founder of Apple which is Atari hotels, which is the first luxury gaming hotels. And we have, like as I mentioned at Disney now, you have one of the highest rate hotels in the world is a Star Wars hotel, right? Our industry has gone in so many different directions. I think that Ian Schrager was probably one of the most influential people behind that when he created what we call today the boutique brand, boutique hotel with Delano and Vandria and all of those back with Morgans. I think he changed our industry forever and in a good way. Definitely agree. Where would I take him for lunch? That would be a tricky (laughs) one with Ian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> probably to the uh, I believe he was involved with the addition in New York. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to catch him on his own home turf and, and have lunch with him there.
1: <laughs> That's great. Uh, what, any, is there any regrets that you have?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I realized, as you mentioned, I was in culinary. I started my career in culinary and I really loved it. But I think the hotel side was where I was better suited, even though I, I did quite well on the culinary side. I, I enjoyed the hotel side a lot more. And I wish I had done that earlier, got into it a lot
1: earlier. Is there something that you wish you were better at?
0: Yeah, I, I'm getting better at it as I as, as time goes on. But I, but I think just you know really spending more time with people that are you know I I think that we've met a lot of amazing people along the way, and and just spending more time reconnecting with people you know that that we've met. It's definitely something that I think our travel industry or the the industry is, is a journey. You're going to go and end up in places all over the world if you do it right. You know, I feel like we lose touch, or I specifically lose touch with a lot of people that I probably should have reconnected with a long time ago, and and I'm trying to get better at, at doing that.
1: If you could have a superpower, what superpower would you like to have?
0: I feel like a superpower for our industry would be really to just be able to see into what guests want. I think that that's our biggest challenge that we face today is just understanding what they're looking for. I think there's some common things that they all have which bring them together. But I think uh, if I was going to be the, the best hotelier of all time, if I could read their minds, I think that would make life a lot easier.
2: Hello, my name is Steve Karen, Director of Sales at Stay Flexi and the co-host of The Modern Hotelier. Stay Flexi is a modern all-in-one system for hotels and vacation rentals. It's a built-in channel manager, PMS, booking engine, POS, revenue manager, and a magic link where your guests will receive a text message or email that has a link that's live throughout the whole stay. So your guests will be able to check in, add any products or experiences onto their stay while they're in-house, and then use that link to also check out. StayFlexy Flexi is built to be flexible to accommodate the modern guests while also being easy to use so any hotelier can pick it up quickly. Shoot me an email at steve.karen at or message me on LinkedIn to learn more or set up a demo. Thanks so much and enjoy this episode of The Modern Hotelier. So now we'll get into the personal part, kind of a little bit about your background, what makes you tick and those things. So you were born in Israel, is that correct? Yes, I was. And then, but you grew up in the States. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So my family's from, I mentioned from Cape Town, South Africa. My father was a doctor. He did his uh, residency in Israel, which is why I was born there. And then they they moved over here to the United States when I was six or seven years old. So I grew up in both, I would say, first part South Africa, then the rest here.
2: How did that shape you kind of as far as who you are today? Obviously it impacted your professional journey, but you know, as far as who you are today, how did that affect you?
0: Yeah, I think it just opened my eyes to that there's a world and things are done differently in different places. And some places do things better than other places. And, you know, we can learn a lot just from really just, I, I think our industry, if there's anything that we have that really prepared us for globalizations, we were already the global business before we even started.
1: So you, you went to Johnson and Wales. What kind of led you to go there?
0: Uh, the food scene in Minnesota. So I ended up uh, studying for <laughs> <laughs> 1991, so 1989, didn't know what I wanted to do. I told you I'd worked in a restaurant for most of my high school in New York, and which is where I went to high school. And then I went out, I got into college out in Minnesota. I was studying there for two years, and uh, I was doing hospitality. And so the food scene in 1989 in Minnesota was rough. Things have changed a lot <laughs> over the last however many years. And so One part of our training was uh, culinaries, right? Uh, It was cooking. And so I picked up a knife and I started cooking. And the person who was the dean looked at me and said, you're in the wrong program, kid. This is not like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) this is not New York cooking here. And I said, I know. And he said, you should go to culinary school. And actually, it's an interesting thing because I hadn't really thought about it. Now is the time that culinary schools are really starting to take off, right? And Johnson & Wales was one of only two schools really that had a degree at the time, which was the CIA and Johnson & Wales. And Johnson Wills had a four-year degree before, so this is before the CIA got their four-year four year degree. So I already had two years of credits and I said, well, I'm going to go to the one where I can get a bachelor's instead of, but yeah, that's how I ended up there. And um, yeah, it was a great school, but times have changed. I mean, if you look at it now, you know, they just closed Miami and Denver campuses, two of their four campuses. And, you know, it's, it's a very different time to back then when I think everything
2: was just starting to take off. And you're a, uh, you're a juggler, correct? Yeah. And you're, you're currently training for the Chicago marathon. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So actually I ran Chicago.
2: You ran Chicago. Okay.
0: I juggled London marathon on October 2nd. I juggled the Chicago marathon on October 9th. Uh, I should mention that my father's quite famous at this. And so he juggled those as well.
2: So tell people that aren't familiar with it. What do you do? You're you're juggling while running a marathon, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So we run and we juggle. We juggle three balls. Uh, Last year I did I juggled the Berlin Marathon, which was the first time I made it through a marathon without dropping the balls at least once. London, Chicago a week later, and then New York Marathon about three weeks after that. And now I'm heading to Tokyo in March to do the Tokyo Marathon.
2: So awesome. How'd you get into this? It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. As I mentioned, my father's been doing this for many years. So this is a great story. He, Yeah. Last year, he came third in his age group in the New York Marathon. Wow. Juggling. So, and the others weren't juggling. So he's been doing it for a long time. So he got me into it and eventually talked me into it.
2: Sure. And how long has he been doing it? How did he get into it?
0: He's been doing it for a long, a long time to put it. So this year he did his 15th New York marathon. And so he doesn't have to apply anymore. He's automatically. And so that just puts it in perspective. He's on them all over the world. Like he's been doing it for a very long time. He's 77. I mean, really, really strong. Um, He got into it because I mentioned that we grew up in South Africa, but he actually grew up in Namibia in Southwest Africa in a small little farm area. And there wasn't much going on. So he taught himself the hula hoop and juggling. And he won competitions in both, although I don't think there was a lot of competition. <laughs> sure. And yeah, this kind of kept it up as a hobby and then started running and put the two together. And so, yeah, that's what he does.
1: It's incredible. That's one of the great things about the podcast for me, because we've had people like you that I'm just meeting that are... I'm finding out things that I didn't even know existed before the program. I I (laughs) went on YouTube to look it up and I was like, holy cow, you know, we found out things about others that, you know, we didn't know, but you're also an avid kiteboarder. How did you get into that? You're an active guy. So we got you, you know, running around (laughs) juggling and kiteboarding. How did that happen?
0: Yeah. So I went back to South Africa, as I mentioned, and I kind of surfing was a thing I've done for most of my life. And Cape Town is very famous for kiteboarding. It's probably, I'd say, one of the most popular places in the world for it. And so, started doing it there. And it's such a great sport to do while you travel. And it's funny. I meet so many people in the hospitality industry, like that work at different resorts around the world on islands, and they're all kite kite surfers because it's really? just like a very yeah. It's a great sport to take with you when you go to different places. So yeah, have fun with that.
2: So you just pack the board and the parachute. Is that all you bring?
0: Yeah. So i've actually switched to a surfboard so i don't use the small board anymore um so i usually just take a surfboard bag and i stuff everything in there and off we go yeah yeah it's great perfect for work because you know traveling to all these hotels a lot of them are in really good kite surfing spots so if i know it's going to be a good kite spot then i i bring it bring stuff with all right
2: david when we're in a good kite surfing spot me and you are going to go (laughs) Let's Hopefully, that, that might be the end of the modern hotel but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, they do so, say that
0: kiting is the new gulf, so, you know, it's very... Uh, really? Yeah, no, they, they have a... there's a, cause San Francisco has very good kite surfing in the bay there, and so a lot of the tech people have meetings, and there's a lot of startups have um, yeah. kind of tech kite conferences. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun if you live somewhere where you
2: can do it. Sure, sure. We'll have to check it out. That's awesome. <laughs> So so now we'll get into more of your career and kind of what brought you to IHLA. So you started, like you said, working in the kitchens in New York when you were 16. After you graduated Johnson & Wales, you said you moved to South Africa. You know, you mentioned that this was kind of the biggest, one of the biggest gambles of your career. Why was that? What kind of what was going through your head when you were making this decision to move to Africa?
0: You know, it was a combination of me being from there, I think, and then also just having met somebody who's... I think at the top, you know, back then in the world of chefing, Billy Gallagher was just, you know, he was at the top of all the world associations. That's why Johnson, he was, so Johnson Wales actually brought him out to give him an honorary award and all this. And when he said, come work for me, I was like, you can't turn this down. So I have to say, like, I think a lot of our industry is, you know, has been affected by just how the internet and everything works and there's pluses and there's minuses. And I think I almost feel a little bit, Nostalgic when looking back at brochure traveling, I had this brochure. That's all I had of like where I was going to, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, you go and you're like you're sitting there on this flight and you've got this brochure and that was it. That's what you had, you know. And so, yeah, it was it was exciting. I think today we sometimes over research as travel. We just are so over research, or or travelers are so over researched that when they go somewhere, it's hard to excite them, right? Because there's very Little surprise left because they've they, they know what dish they're ordering and what restaurant that they need to go to at what time of the day and and that's all well and good but it does take a little bit of the magic out that used to come when you got to your brochure and you hoped it lined up with the hotel <laughs> it was a big thing back then yeah, it's it's yeah. a great
1: point I it's funny because I always get you know whenever I go somewhere for dinner I don't look at the menu because I I don't want to lose that effect of getting to the restaurant and and just seeing it for the first time. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, here's the menu. We're going here. Let's go check it out. And I'm like, I I don't want to check it out. I know I'm going to the restaurant. Let me get there and be surprised and, and find out what's on the menu when I get there.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a lot of our challenges today around that specific issue.
2: Absolutely. And in 2003, you were voted as one of the top chefs in South, South Africa. What inspired your food? And what do you think really made you stand out as one of the top chefs?
0: I think that a lot of it's just timing. I left New York. I went back to New York. And then I went, I went to South Africa, I went back, I worked for a little bit, did a short stint in the kitchen, helping out uh, Rocco Disparito at Union Pacific around 2000, I want to say it was 2001, just before he made his TV show. And, you know, kind of saw what was going on. And a lot of the chefs were, you know, Bobby Flay. And these chefs were were like taking regional cuisines and adapting them to more upscale, right? So it was always kind of fine dining prior to that. was typically like European. It was a very French or, you know, German. It was just done a certain way, right? Everything was done this way. This is the way you make it. And so these guys were taking the ingredients of like, and techniques of different you know southwestern food and you know uh, latin food and and all different types of food and they were coming up with these really upscale hugely popular restaurants in new york where the ingredients and the flavors and a mo- lot more driven by flavors and ingredients and so south africa still had when i got there the cape town the i say cape town because it's the main kind of uh, i would say spot for travel and tourism the food was very European. So if you went out to a good restaurant, it was like a chef that had come over from Germany 15 years over or France. And the food was very much like what you would think it would be. And so I saw the opportunity when I came back from that trip to kind of take some of the things that I learned over there and use the South African. Because South Africa is a big melting pot of different cultures there, right? You've got the African cuisine and different kinds. And then you have... Malaysian cuisine from the people that settled from Malaysia. You have a very large Indian community in Durban. There's a lot of different things going. On. The Dutch, the British. It's a lot of different flavors. Even some Greek from the sailors that came through. So there's a lot of different things going on. But there's definitely some South African ingredients and flavors and things like that. And so that's what I did is I took a lot of that and I said, okay, well let's kind of elevate this like these guys did. And that um, was popular. It worked out. And it wasn't just myself. There were about four or five of us cuz at the time I was a regional chairperson for the South African Chefs Association in Cape Town and so on our committee we were like five or six really good chefs from Cape Town who were doing the same thing and we kind of all did it as a hey it's our turn you know and then uh, you know that that worked out great and and we had a big you know positive feedback on that so I feel like we helped do something there as well
1: what pulled you to the hotel side of things
0: you know i go back to that grand card that i had on my first day like in a hotel i just loved the hotel industry and so I went from restaurants to hotels I transitioned over I just found that there's something about a hotel especially in a tourist place people pay a lot of money to come to stay in the place that you live and work right and so I just felt hotels really allow you to to get the best of everything and I loved just being in the service industry and the high end kind of luxury hotels also I just I feel like I got lucky with hotel owners that I worked for that were just really believed in their places it wasn't uh you know, a lot of what we have today are big funds that are investing in hotels and stuff like that. And it's a lot of numbers driven. And I think I was lucky to be able to experience having owners who, and this is absolutely true. So when we opened Bushman's Clue, if I was part of the team there that kind of opened, it was doing the opening part where we became part of Berlin Chateau, you know, the owner just said, I don't care about food costs. I want the best hotel in the world. Just bring out like, he had a plane flying in fish from Cape Town. And this, it did go on to win best hotel in the world, but it was it was just you know when you have owners that really care about that and the culture of the people that work for them, you know it, I, there's no better place to work in hospitality, you know, and so that's that's a message I think we we need to focus on now, bringing back is that
1: you think there's something that you learned that was either specific or unique to starting out in South Africa in hotels?
0: Yeah, I do actually. I think it's one of the reasons where I am today i've I've been able to kind of jump in because. I think a lot of what I know from the hotel insurance are just from people that, that I've been able to put together in the association over the years and through, through Hospitalio. But having worked in South Africa, there was a time in that period that I was there that I think South Africa was going through this golden hotel era where we set the examples for the rest of the world. I think hotels like Singita, which won Best Hotel in the World three times and Cape Grace went on to win Best Hotel in the World. I was at the opening of that hotel. These hotels in South Africa, there's a culture of really like knowing who your guests are and taking care of them and really just the whole building an experience around who they are and what they want that they don't do anywhere or they they do it in other parts of the world. But I don't think anyone does it better than South Africa, which is why when you go back and you look at those, especially those years where South Africa was really coming back on now, it's not that long, though, they're still winning a lot of awards. But you'll see that there's probably more winners of Best Hotel in the world in that country. And anyone that travels there will tell you, it's one of the best hospitality experiences
2: they've ever had. And then in 2004, you founded Hospitalio Recruitment. What made you get into the, to the recruitment side of things?
0: Yeah, I started in Cape Town. I, I think my wife, my wife and I, we had a, our daughter- and so we were looking, she was in the fashion industry. She was at the time, the fashion editor for the South African edition of InStyle magazine. And so, you know, it was two crazy careers, right? One hospitality where you're working nights and weekends and things like that. And she's working during the week, but she's working at five o'clock in the morning on photo shoots and things like that. And it was just, we thought, let's do something where we're already doing crazy stuff, crazy hours. Let's start a business. So we did, it was an opportunity. i I had been referring a lot of people that I knew in the industry for jobs. And so I gave it a shot and uh, it was, it was great. We're over 20 years old now, so.
2: Very cool. And are there any candidates you specifically work well with any, any, anybody that might be listening, you know, might be looking for a job that might want to reach out to you?
0: Yeah. You know, where recruitment agencies come in, I think it's, it's also to tell people what they can't do because a lot of people come to a recruitment agency and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. Can you help me find a job? And we actually get paid by the by the hotels um, and they use us generally when they're, or cruise lines that we work with cruise lines too. But we generally work with them when they're, a lot of them will have in-house teams and they can recruit. They have a, they have a lot of tools that we have. So they really come to us when a position is very important. They need something very specific. They're, get, they're stuck on a position. And that's where they come to us. So even the biggest, some of our biggest clients have massive in-house recruiting teams. They fill most of their positions themselves. They come to us just for positions that are really key. So why that's important is because if you're looking for a job and you come to a recruitment agency, we aren't able to take you and put you into a job. We're actually out there looking for specific people for specific, specific things. So you're still better off usually trying to apply for jobs directly unless you see that the agency has a job, but it's also good to list yourself with us. And if something does come in, then we can always say, hey, yeah, something's come up. So we tend to work better for people that are currently employed and not actively looking because it's all about timing. Yeah.
2: And in 2008, you organically started IHLA. How did that happen?
0: Yeah. Started with something called Luxury Hoteliers. So back in... uh, This is really like, you know, go back to Ian Schrager, right? So let's say late 90s, like late 80s through the 90s, the boutique sort of brand, you know, uh, W and all of these brands were starting to like kind of come up, but they weren't where they were. And then all of a sudden everything exploded. And at the same time, globalization was really taking off. So people were, most of the people who were making decisions in the hotel industry. And when I say decisions, I'm talking about people that were either owners representatives, or they were, you know, senior management and hotel companies, they came from the same background. We all came from this, like went to hotel school, worked in these really upscale hotels, but we only knew one way it was done. Right. Which is, I would call it the European way, because that's kind of where it all started the old Caesar Ritz way of doing stuff. Right. And so everything looked one way. And then all of a sudden it went in a million different directions. And so people who are in the industry or worked with the industry, they were all asking questions because they didn't have answers to them. And they were things like around technology. I mean, think about this. When we started this, most hotels didn't have an IT manager. Wow. You know, so we started as a forum. Luxury Hoteliers was on, uh, I don't know if you remember forums. Mm -hmm. It's been around for a while.
2: Absolutely. It's still around on LinkedIn, isn't it? The original, the original
0: forum. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So so we moved it on. So we started as an, an actual forum, like, you know, an online forum. And then we moved it to LinkedIn with LinkedIn was just starting out then. And so now we still have we're lucky to have got involved early. And so eight of the top ten groups in hospitality on LinkedIn are run by our association. But that's kind of how it went. It progressed, and people were joining. And the next thing we had a hundred thousand people that were joining, and they were saying, you know, they were all asking similar questions. And what we realized was that. And we ran a poll because we were trying to decide what to do with this large audience. And so we asked for suggestions and people said, well, you should, the, the biggest thing that came back was you should start a luxury hotel association. So we asked a couple of questions. One of them was, are there any other luxury hotel associations out there? And there wasn't. The only ones that are out there are B2C, you know, like leading hotels of the world and stuff like that for marketing, but not really a B2B association. The other thing, was we asked people, you know, is there a need for it? And so every country has a hotel association and we've got great relationships with all of them, but their focus is it has always been more on like the whole industry as a whole. They include limited service. They do a lot of educational stuff at the early levels, right? The problem for our people were they're now at the top of their career and they need to know, should I be investing for these owners in sustainability? Should I be investing in what brands because we only had a few brands now we have 150 brands to choose from you know all these kind of questions along the way i mean i i can remember when we were still arguing not arguing we were still the discussion of the day and when we first started out was like should we be charging for wi-fi you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> remember that those are the kind of conversations that have gone on over the years i love looking back and seeing over but that's how we got started and it just it really was organic in that I remember thinking like, "Oh my God, how's this going to work?" And so many people along the way stepped in. You know, amazing people. Right at the beginning, and and still to this day. But you know, some of the people that got involved: Allison Sitch, who was a head of public relations for Ritz Carlton globally, and uh, Matthew Evans, who's chairman of Evans Communication. They're the the guys that came up with the Centurion card for American Express and Ted Tang who was president of Leading Hotels. You know, all these kind of really amazing people stepped out of the work, work, and a lot more. I know there's so many people I should be mentioning, but they all stepped out and just said, hey, let's do this, you know? And so they've been involved since the beginning.
1: That's great. So IHLA has grown a lot. What makes it different from other organizations? Maybe not just luxury, but other organizations in general, or maybe just specifically luxury?
0: I think one of the keys to our success was We were built backwards. So I had a conversation with one of the senior people at American Hotel and Lodging Association when I was first starting out, just asking them for advice. And they said, you know, one of the things that's happening is that associations, you know, it's like the hospitality industry. The internet has changed the way things are done, right? And so the same thing happened with associations is that associations before the internet really were like hands-on, face-to-face, member-driven with like maybe a magazine that went out and and that's how you stayed on top of stuff, right? But then when the internet started putting everything out there, you know, associations kind of really started looking at things differently. So instead of looking at like our members, we were looking more at our audience, right? So we had an audience that had to start an association. So they were trying to get our direction and we were trying to get their direction. So it was really interesting. I think that was the one thing that helped us more is we started with a very large audience. I mean, in fact, think about this when we launched the association and officially the association registered it as a nonprofit here in the U.S. and launched it. When we put the logo onto our groups at that time, 120,000 people in 60 different countries suddenly had an ILHA logo on their LinkedIn profile. So that's always been our strength is just this massive audience of people that can get involved in the conversation. And so I think the reason for that, I think the reason that we still run LinkedIn's biggest overall, there's 7,000 hospitality groups on LinkedIn and the largest is ours. And the reason is because luxury kind of leads hospitality. If I was selling cars, let's say I was a Ford dealer, I would still follow Ferrari, right? So I think that luxury is where a lot of Just the nature of luxury hotels, each being slightly different from each other, allow a lot more innovation and things to happen in luxury. There's a bigger budget for things and things like that. So I think people in the hospitality industry have followed luxury segment, even if they weren't necessarily in the luxury segment.
1: So the Inspire 2022 event is going to be at the Arizona Biltmore, December 14th to 15th, coming up in a little bit. Besides industry leaders, who else are we going to find at this event? And what can attendees expect if they they show up or are attending in a couple of weeks?
0: First of all, it's the one other thing that kind of sets us apart and it's why I would come to the event is most of, I think what we realize when you make big decisions, right? Whether you're a hotel owner or you're an operator or you're in operations, you need to have your finger on the pulse of everything that's happening. So what tends to happen with conferences is, especially in luxury, it was all of a sudden we need to know about art and food and all this stuff. So at our event, our sessions are really covered the most important innovation in each area. So we talk about spa and wellness, investment, finance, food and beverage, you know, sustainability, all of these things, ESG, all of the stuff we talk about at the conference. That allows people who might, let's say, for instance, I was uh, overseeing a hotel group or management company or an asset manager. I would probably send my finance person to the finance conference. I might send my development guide to the investment conference. I might send my you know, my IT guy at the tech conference and so on and so on and so on. And what ends up happening, you know, they have to be the chefs go to the food conference problem is that they're siloed, right. And then they come back and they don't have it. So what we try to do is we have, you know, we had the chef from Relaine Chateau talking about their new program. And then we have, so we have a little bit of everything plus stuff that's new things that are, we think are going to impact the industry. And the idea is that you leave at the end of the year Going into 2023, motivated and excited, and have some ideas of the planning that you need to do to kind of adapt to this stuff because it's always changing.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is your 11th year hosting this show. The show, is that right?
0: It's our 11th event, yeah. So we've had two in Europe, the other nine have been in the United States, but very excited. I can't announce it yet because they they're making me wait for <laughs> the event. But if you come to the event, you'll find out where our next, international one's going to be We're very excited about it. We're going to be having two events in 2023, one in one outside the U.S. and one, uh, one in the U.S.
2: Very cool. Awesome. Well, we are excited. So now, you know, I'm excited for this. This is where we get your thoughts on the industry. Specifically, we'll talk about the luxury side of things. But, you know, for somebody who's who's just thinking about getting into hospitality or even specifically on the luxury side, any advice you'd give them?
1: Yeah,
0: I think right now is actually probably like when I started my career, I think the pandemic just shut the industry down for such a long period of time that it forced a lot of people to leave the industry. And to me, that creates opportunity for those that are prepared to kind of take it on. So you're never going to get, if you, do, if you come into this industry, you're a hospitality person because you really need to think to yourself and say, do I like, like, When I serve, when when somebody asks me for help, do I push away or do I want to help them? If you push away, it's the wrong industry for you. That's the simplest point. Most successful people in in the industry have realized when you're hiring, that's the first thing you need to do is look at somebody. So I think if somebody's starting to go out from their perspective as well, say, is this something I enjoy doing? If you do enjoy it, I don't think there's ever going to be a better time if you get in. The other piece of advice I will give you is something they told me in culinary school and it was so true. The statement is it's better to clean lettuce at the best restaurant in town than it is to be the head chef of the worst. And so hospitality is all about standards. It's very hard for people in their careers. They get stuck because they get promoted very quickly into like, say, a limited service hotel. And there's nothing wrong with working in limited service hotel, but the glory at the top tends to work in luxury. Sure. So I, I would try to take the lowest job you can in the best hotel you can. That's
1: great advice. Yeah. So having now talked to you for a little bit, I'm sure we could spend probably a whole podcast on this, but what do you think are some of the best ways that luxury properties can stand out?
0: I'll go back to you earlier. I think, I think where we're missing the point is that we don't know who our guests are. And even when I was starting out at my first hotel, at Grand Floridian, and I was like a junior guy in the kitchen there. We still met to talk about who was staying there, why they were staying there. I think that we need to know who our Our customer is why they're there. Simple question, and I don't buy the excuse that big hotels can't do it. You know who's very good at it is Ritz Carlton. So when you walk into a Ritz Carlton, I guarantee they're going to greet you by name. They're going to ask you questions that are personal, or you know about you, and they're going to they're going to get to know who the people are and why they're there. And I think that I'm still surprised by some of the hotels that I've stayed at more than once that are considered ultra luxury, best in this gateway city, you know, top city, and I'll check in and they're asking me who I am. And I'm, you know, and it, it, it just, it's like, you need to figure out the system on how to to know who they are. And people want to be recognized they're spending a lot of money in your hotel. I don't think that a card in the room or their name on the TV is, is enough. Not in those kind of hotels. I've mentioned the Cape Grace earlier. I was there at the opening. It won best hotel in the world. And if you look at the hotel you've been in there, I don't think it's the most, it's a great hotel. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think that there's anything in there from a physical perspective that any other, you know, decent hotel has. What makes their hotel special and why people keep going back there is the service and the experience that they offer. The programming is another big thing that is in hotels now. You know, they have a lot of programming going on, but just to give you an idea, this is going back. I mean, I can tell you stuff that people are talking about now is cutting edge, and I can tell you they were doing it in South Africa 20 years ago. One example is at the Cape Grace, when you checked in, they would come over, they didn't have an iPad, but they had a, somebody would greet you and check you in, not at the front desk, but would take you to a lounge offer you a drink and then check you in, sitting down with you, right? Now, if you go to the Park High in New York, somebody greets you with an iPad and checks you in before you go to the desk. It's something that's been done. You can use technology or you can do it the old fashioned way, the way we did it. But it's just, you feel special. This is a top hotel and, and they can do it. It's a big, they're big hotels. So, you know, I, I feel like that sort of customer service and just getting to know who people are and why they're there is something that lacks in some of our top luxury properties. We have everything else. They spend tons of money on technology and, you know, all those things. I
1: was in New York a couple months ago and um, my friend Anthony Melchiori said, we got to go to the, the Ritz-Carlton. They just opened uh, the Nomad hotel on a street doesn't look like a Ritz-Carlton should be there but you're 100% right from the time we walked in he had made a reservation they walked you from the desk to the greeter at the elevators as soon as you got off the elevator there was somebody there greeting you they knew who we were the waitress at the rooftop she had two weeks training I would guarantee you most hotels servers don't get two hours of training they just you know have a resume or they've come from some other job so it's it's
0: you need a system so that everyone knows what's happening, right? I think that's also the key is that everyone that works in the property, Disney, going back to those days, you had to spend a week training, didn't matter what you did. You weren't allowed to put foot on property until you had a week of training. So it's very important. I think where a lot of the, the kind of negative stuff started happening was after 2008, the last sort of downturn, the recession there was a lot of, um, investment from a lot, a lot, of equity stepped in and started buying places in luxury. And then it became numbers driven. And so in the past, when somebody owned a hotel or bought a hotel or built a hotel, a lot of it was, was around like, um, we're building this forever. Right. And own, or planning on owning it for a long time. And I think, when equity came in, there's a lot of, uh, and all my equity guys are going to be yelling at me, but that's just, I think it's important. <laughs> Ted Teng, <Yeah. clears throat> this, by the way, was something that Ted Teng brought up to me just a couple of weeks ago. Same thing about you know, their time span. They buy a hotel, they flip it. And so there's not as much, it's more of an, an physical asset with a cost attached to it and not so much a place to work. And I think we, we're going to have a lot of problems in luxury if we don't get over that
2: hurdle. And you brought this up a little bit earlier about using an iPad to check guests in instead of having them go to the front desk. How can luxury hotels implement different types of technology to increase that guest experience and you know hopefully help bring in more revenue?
0: Yeah, I think that technology is a great thing. It can, it can be your best friend and your worst enemy. There's yep. only one thing you need right. to think about. There's a simple question that you need to ask yourself. I mentioned earlier that everybody, luxury guests all want different stuff, but they all want but they all have one thing in common. That one thing is their time. Thank you, Allison Sitch from, from Ritz-Carlton for helping me see this. It's their time. It's the one thing they have in common, right? And so everyone feels today that they have less and less time. And so when somebody comes and they stays at your property, there are things that they, they want to do and there's things that they don't want to do. So What you need to do, your job as a hotelier is to try and increase the amount of time that they spend doing what they want to do and decrease the amount of time that they don't do what they want to do. No one wants to stay in line at a front desk, right? Everyone wants to lie at the pool. So, when the one question you have to ask yourself is, is this going to allow the person to spend more time doing what they want to do? Or is it taking time away from what they want to do? That's the one question you should ask yourself. And then I think when we look at technology, we have to apply it like that. And we also have to remember everyone. I think the biggest challenge we have in hospitalities, I'll give you the example of staying in an amazing you know, casino in Las Vegas and all the latest tech, they just kind of launched the room. And it was amazing. It was wonderful. But it took me an hour to figure out how to turn the lights out. Because <laughs> it's so... Right. And if I can't do it, then how's my mother going to do it? Right. So I think that what we call that friction You know, I think what our job as hoteliers is to remove friction from people's trips. So as long as it's intuitive and it saves them time to do things that they want to do, then I think you're on the right path. If it's eating into that time, then you're on the wrong path.
1: It's amazing because I brought this up on our our last episode, but I just had an experience and Steve and I talked about it with a hotel that, you know, self-check in and it was great and you just made me realize why i was so excited that it was seamless and it was great because i wanted to get to the bar <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah i, exactly. Did, I didn't want to, i didn't want to be at the desk i just had a long flight i was going from you know phoenix to to london you know i took the heathrow express you know took took a taxi and i just wanted to get to the bar and have a drink and that was you you hit it that was perfect it was just about my time that's where i wanted to spend my time
0: Yeah. So technology figured out a way to do what the Cape Grace did manually, right? They handed you the drink when you walked in the door and they said, sit down and they, and they did it. Now, obviously there's a huge cost to that. And so if you can recreate the experience through technology, again, they didn't have the technology to stop you from checking in and spending time doing it, but they got you to the drink quicker, right? So that's a workaround, but I think technology will allow you to get not only that, but I think tech can also have the drink ready for you when you get there.
1: That's funny. So just a couple more to go. So outside of labor issues, what do you think are, is the biggest challenge facing our industry as a whole?
0: Yeah, I mean, I outside of labor issues. <laughs> so I think everything that we have, that is the biggest challenge. So, okay, we won't go into that. But I do feel like we need to make an effort to make this industry attractive. It always was attractive. So let's remake it attractive, right, for people. I have to say that because I still think that's the biggest thing. I won't say it's the biggest because it's hard to to judge which one, but an important thing right now is let's talk about events, right? And meetings and business travel. So the way I look at it is when we had our industry overcome a challenge, we talked about the industry changing, right? And so restaurants all used to look a certain way. And then what happened? We brought, we partnered, You know, Vegas kicked it off. We started partnering with celebrity chefs and like finding the hot restaurants and putting them in our hotels. And all of a sudden, you know, Kempton was like, like a kind of a, a great brand that starting out with that partnership. And people started coming to our hotels and eating. Locals started eating there, right? And I think then you go into the banqueting and meeting space and everything just dies, right? So yeah, after you could meet at our event, um, Colin Cowley is a good friend, also a fellow South African. I don't know if you know him. He's been named several times the number one wedding planner in the world. And uh, he's done... All the A-list celebrities, J-Lo, Oprah, you know, you name it. In fact, he was Oprah's uh, wedding person on the show. And so I've had him speak a few times at our event because he won't do events in hotels. He won't. He never has. Because he said, you just, I I can't let what happens in there. But he gives us advice. And so slowly he's starting to work with hotels to bring us to that point. So I feel like where we were with the restaurant industry, with the restaurant, the F&B side of hotels, I feel like we are with meetings. And I feel like the pandemic just really leveled meetings to like ground zero, right? Just that's it. Boom. Now we have the opportunity to rebuild everything. And I feel like through technology and through just, you know, getting creative, great partnerships, let's take our meetings into something that is is much more exciting. I think it's really, really important to be able to kind of reimagine that. And that's a big challenge is getting people. Now, at the same time, much like revenge travel has driven the current boom in travel. I feel like with remote work being so much part of society now, and it's a here to stay, I think there's going to be a need for people to go and have this kind of face-to-face connections. I think meetings will have a sort of revenge travel moment if we do it right. Because I feel like when people work in an office, they get a lot of those interactions during the day. When they work at home, it's hard. They need that. And so I think you're going to see the conference boom come back very, very strong. And it's our opportunity for us to kind of reinvent ourselves on the hotel side, because I think we've just left meetings very dormant for a very long time.
2: Last question. Do you think the metaverse is going to have a role in kind of the meeting space in the future? And also, how is the metaverse going to affect the luxury hotel space?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's definitely one to watch. You know, I have a lot of respect for new tech just because look at what happened to us and LinkedIn, right? We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for LinkedIn. So whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I feel like no matter what you do with technology, you can't replace face-to-face. So the more that that t- stuff types to increase the more people are going to want to look at, the, look at the boom in the United States of people just moving out of cities during the pandemic to get into cabins in the woods, right? Because they were spending 24 seven on the computer. So I think the more that happens, I think the more it's going to drive excitement to go to these physical places and meet physical people.
1: Well, we thank you very much. We've come to the end of another episode of The Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi. We really enjoyed having you. One last thing, plug away. If there's, you tell us more about Inspire. And I know some of the events, you can't tell us next year where, but tell us, you know, plug away.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I think that if you've never been to Inspire and, you, and you're saying, look, i you know, if the one event that truly is for everybody, whether you work in operations I, I just had yesterday somebody from a property bringing five or a hotel owner bringing five of their staff there because it's, it's the kind of event where I think you're going to leave. Uh, we call it Inspire, but really that's what our industry is all about. I think it'll recharge you. We specifically put it towards the end of the year with that little dip between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas rush. So there's an opportunity for anyone in our industry to come. But I think the biggest thing you're going to make there is connections. I mean, I think the content is amazing. You can just go online and see the agenda and who we have, and it's always going to leave you really feeling passionate for the industry and what's happening. But I think the people you meet there, it's it's the one event where, you know, I'll give you, it's very hard to meet hotel owners, the people who are, let's call it the asset managers of our industry and those guys, because they go to investment conferences and they hide away. They're all admitted. In fact, Alex Sonia, who runs our European chapter, and he's going to be putting on our event for us. And he is Europe and Middle East. He's one of the biggest asset managers in the world. He used to be the asset manager for kingdom invest, hospitality investments of in the Saudi royal families, all their ho- hotels all over the world and stuff like that. These are very hard people to meet, the ones behind, you know, and the way our hotel industry runs now, you know, brands are brands, but the ownership is very, very different. And so these are the kind of people you can meet. I think it's a one chance where you get to really meet people in operations, people at corporate, people who all come together and just kind of talk about stuff. So that's to me the most exciting part of the event.
1: Great. I'm excited. I'll, I'll be there. I'm excited. Steven will yeah, be there. Me too. I'm excited too. I can't wait to
2: talk. No, I just want yeah. to say,
1: but I've gone the past two
2: years and I have had some of the best networking within the industry at these events. It's not like other events where people are in a hurry running to go to like, you know booths or whatever, but everybody is there and open to having a conversation. And I have, you know, built great connections we've talked to on this show and, and other ones that, you know, are now friends just from going to those shows. So go awesome show. And I am excited to be there in a couple of weeks. Yeah.
0: Plus I can, I can, I can tell you no matter what, it can't be that bad because this hotel is beautiful <laughs> and you will have the best time ever chilling out. You know, weather's going to be amazing. So look forward to seeing you all there.
1: Great. Well, thanks again for watching another episode of The Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi. Thank you. You
2: made it to the end of The Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media and presented by Stay Flexi. Stay Flexi is your modern operating system for independent hotels. If you're interested in learning more about Stay Flexi, you can go to stayflexi.com. Or if you'd rather talk to me instead, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or email me at steve.karen at stayflexy.com. Thanks and have a great day.